Can anybody tell me what it means when we hear the piano start to play before the service? Nobody knows? I can tell nobody knows. Just start to end your conversations. Quiet it down. Can't complain today. We had Jared gave us all kind of time. He let out of study school on time. So. Announcements. Take your bulletin and we'll look down through those. Verse of the week. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Today's our communion service. Following the morning worship service, 10-minute break, and then regather at the music. No dinner today, and no evening service. Uh, Jared continues his excellent series, Body Life. That's 9:30 at uh, in the auditorium uh, for the adult Sunday school class. Elders and deacons, you have a meeting today after the communion service. Uh, hopefully, you brought your lunch. New budget and election results posted on the Times Board. Uh, there's an increase in the weekly giving. The Times Board is the one in the hallway back here, not this one, but back there. Prayer service, Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock. Winter blast, that is this coming weekend. Uh, grades 7 through 12 at Lemoyne down by Toledo. Uh, if you've not made arrangements, contact Laura. <laughs> Thanks to all who contributed to the uh, Layette Christmas Project for the Center. Thornville Baptist Church hosting family conference in July. Uh, we'll need some help with that, so uh, think about what you be, might be able to do to help. Acts and facts uh, for February are here. Also, in your bulletin, uh, you have an insert there regarding SGBA men's retreat, also coming up quickly, um, February 22 and 23, and that is uh, going to be at uh, Faith Bible in Vernon. You'll see there's also a cost with that. All right, anything I've missed, forgotten? I'll direct you then to the scripture for meditation. Matthew 24, read verses 1 through 14, 15, 38 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 24, 1 through 14.
welcome you again to our service this morning. Good to see the Donovan gang filling up some pews over there. Welcome, guys. Great. Good to see you out on this chilly morning. Uh, if you'll stand with me, we'll open our service with prayer. Jim, would you open for us this morning? Yeah, I pointed at that one. Thanks. Gracious God and Father, we can thank you yet again for the time that we can come together to worship you, Lord. Pray, Father, again, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, Lord, to enlighten us with the power of your word. Pray for those who are here that might not yet know you, Lord. Pray that you would open up their hearts and set them free. I also pray for our pastor this morning, Lord. Continue to ask that you would give him the wisdom uh, just to speak to him, Lord, so that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Remain standing. First song is out of the Purple Book. We haven't done this in a long time. But that should be in your pew there, the purple chorus book, 181, 181.
keep standing. <laughs> Scripture reading, grab your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll read verses 13 through 18. 1840 in the Pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That the Lord would bless the reading of his word, and I'll have you see. That's it. Please take your red hymnal this time, 324. Oh, 
scripture text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Our last study talked about the joy of living by the Spirit. The new birth or new nature forbids us a return to the old life of sin. This does not mean that we are now sinless, but it does mean that in heart and mind we strive to live holy lives pleasing to the Lord. That in itself, if you think about it, is revolutionary because no unbeliever is motivated with such a goal. Then, too, part of the old nature was and is to try to please God through self-improvement, through human effort, trying to earn reconciliation with God by keeping the commandments. But we learn that God's law is unflinchingly inflexible, and so if you disobey just one time, you become guilty as a lawbreaker, they say sinner, and since The one you've sinned against is impeccably holy. Nothing you do is perfect enough to placate him. Then I thought of something else this week. There used to be an old commercial on television. I think it had to do with some kind of um, potato chips. And it said something like this. Bet you can't eat just one. Remember that commercial? I'm already dating myself. (laughs) So when we think, well, you mean to tell me that if I just do one sin and break one commandment that God's going to judge me and I'm going to spend eternity in hell. Um, The slogan applies. Bet you can't just sin one. When we sin once, we sin again and again and again. But the point that James was making in that text was you don't have to break all Ten Commandments all the time to be labeled as a sinner worthy of God's judgment. You have to break one sin, and then we break it multiple times. But you all know your heart. I know my heart. I wish I could say, but you can't just do it one time and have it be true. We learn that no one is saved because of their goodness or their attempts to be good. Jesus said, there is none good but God. And in saying that, he was telling us that it would take God to please God. Because no one among men has the capacity of holiness or goodness to earn God's approval. And God is not being mean-spirited in all of this. He is just being God. The scripture says he cannot deny himself. He cannot not be God. It's one of the cannots that apply to God. And this is why only Jesus, God's Son, could live in perfect obedience to God's law. He was sinless and then voluntarily died to pay the penalty for sinners as a substitute. He became our Redeemer, literally. The end of the law for such. The end of works. Salvation is then given as a gift of grace gift of mercy which cannot be bought and cannot be earned. Good thing, because we wouldn't make it any other way. 
Well, we're fast coming to uh, the close of this series in Joyful Souls, and this morning I want to talk to you about the joy of the second coming. And there's too much material on this to do it in one message, so we'll have a number of messages on this uh, theme. But as we come this morning, let's ask the Lord to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, send your Spirit upon us to teach us of the second coming of Christ. It's that that we now anticipate. We read in the scriptures the cry, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, because things are going from bad to worse, as you have predicted. We're living here in this situation, in this wicked world. And we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to grant us your grace for day-to-day living, but then even so, to remember mercy, as you also remember wrath. We pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of our relatives and friends who are yet estranged from you. Today, may you find them, Lord, and draw them into your presence. Give them the faith they don't have and the repentance they don't have, that they might become children of God. Bless and honor your word and exalt Jesus, in whose name we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject, the joy of the second coming, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Time magazine had a blasphemous photo of Obama side profile, and underneath the profile was written, the second coming. Well, he may think he's the Messiah, and Time magazine may think he's the Messiah, but he's not. And that will soon be discovered in the days and years to come. There's only one second coming, and that's of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. There are many prophecies in Scripture concerning the advents of Jesus Christ. You'll notice in your bulletin, the first of these, of course, would be all those Old Testament Scriptures and doctrine of the coming of God's Son to be the Savior of His people, the first advent. And there are many scriptures on this, and you know uh, some of these. The very first occurred right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, having succumbed to the lies of the snake, who is Satan. God said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, Mr. Snake, Mr. Satan, and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3, verse 15. Referred to in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, where Paul writes, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So the very first prophecy, the very first book of the Bible, refers to the coming of seed of the woman who would crush the work of Satan. Isaiah spoke 700 years before Christ, and this is what he wrote. 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 verse 14. This is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 where the angel informed Joseph concerning Mary's pregnancy. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, 21 through 23. Even the town of his birth was prophesied 400 years before it occurred, Micah wrote, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah means house of blessing or house of bread, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5, verse 2. This is fulfilled in Matthew 2, verse 5, where Herod the king, prompted by the Magi's visit, asked his Bible scholars where the Messiah was to be born. And what was their answer? They quoted Micah's prophecy, Matthew 2, verse 5 and 6. Well, Micah says he's to be born in Bethlehem. And if you know your history, your Bible history, King Herod sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to slaughter all children two years old and younger according to the sign when the uh, Magi saw the star. So they calculated, hmm, let's see, he would be about two years old, so if we kill everybody two years and younger, we should get him. And that's what Herod did. These prophecies not only predicted Jesus' birth in terms of time and place, but also his work. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the dead, deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. This was Jesus' answer to John the Baptist when he sent his disciples to inquire the identity of Jesus. Who are you? Um, are you the one that we... Are to look for, or should we look for somebody else? Luke 7, verse 22. And Jesus gave this prophecy in Isaiah as go back and tell John this prophecy in Isaiah. Again, his death was predicted. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is quoted by Peter in reference to Jesus 
This says, when they hurled their insults on him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the trees, quoting from Isaiah 53, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 and 24. Psalm 22 actually records some of Jesus' statements from the cross. You can look it up. Isaiah 52, verse 13 and following describes the torture he would endure. Psalm 68, verse 18 says, When you ascend on high, you led captives in your train, you received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord, might dwell there. That's quoted by Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 8 and 9, in reference to Jesus' fulfillment of Acts 1, verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. This is the disciples. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so all this we know as the first advent or the first coming. Lots of scriptures. And believe me when I say this is just a smidget. This is just a smidget of all the prophecies that refer to Christ's first coming. There's over 200 prophecies dealing with the comings of Christ, his first and second advent. Well, what about the second advent? That's also foretold in the Old Testament prophecies. We just read the angelic announcement. That's a New Testament prophecy. But here it is. This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go to heaven. Acts 1 verse 11. Jude quotes a prophecy made by Enoch. And we read, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in, the un, in their ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude, verse 14 and 15. Now, immediately you see, see something very different here, don't you? He's coming back to judge. It's a message of judgment. Not the Savior's coming. No, 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 no. The judge is coming. The king of the universe is coming. That's the message of these second advent prophecies. Let me look at some others. Jacob foretold of Judah his son and his descendants who would be the coming king. Here's what he wrote. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Genesis 49 verse 10. Something's going to happen here in terms of crushing rebellion towards God. Balaam, we don't like Balaam. He's a rinky-dink prophet if you 
Uh, he was hired by Balak, and he was hired to curse Israel, and he wouldn't do it. He tried to do it, he, but he couldn't do it. I should probably say it that way, because the Lord interceded. But here's what. He says, The oracles of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty. Okay, what did he see? Who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. I see him. I see him. But not now. I behold him. But not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush his enemy. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Numbers 24, verse 16 and following. <laughs> Even though he was a bad prophet, when he spoke he had to speak the truth because God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel. And so what does he prophesy? A ruler's coming. A star is going to rise. And he's going to crush his enemy. 1 Samuel 2. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles, he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and then and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 1 Samuel 2. Verse 6 through 10. We don't normally look at a text like that in Samuel, but there it is. This king is God's promised heir of David out of Judah's tribe. Solomon knew it wasn't him. Solomon says, Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David my father and give the promises that you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful to obey my statutes. 1 Kings 8, verse 25. Listen to God Himself as He speaks in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Anointed one is the Hebrew definition of Messiah. It's what the word means. Messiah means the anointed one. So he's, he's asking some questions here. Why do the kings take their stand against the Lord and his Messiah? Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. See, no restraint. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then He rebukes him, them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I've installed my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them 
like pottery. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah speaks of the kingly nature of God's Son, saying this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm waiting for that. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Now, brethren, even with this fast read of just eight verses, we get a feel for a different kind of coming than Jesus' first advent. There is a definite theme here, is there not, of judgment. There is the undercurrent of a dominant rule that subjugates all the nations of the earth under Jesus' scepter. It is not a day of salvation, but it is a day of redemption. It is not Jesus' day of humiliation and suffering and sacrifice and sorrow. No, 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 no. That's all gone. But it is His day of vindication and vengeance and triumph over His enemies. The sobering truth, is it not? The prophecies of Jesus' first coming are well documented by historical events that did occur just as they were predicted. So here's the sobering truth. Is it not reasonable then and fitting to believe that these prophecies of His second coming will be fulfilled in as much a literal and equally historical setting as those prophecies concerning his first advent. God didn't lie the first time. You mean he's lying the second time? He brought to bear everything he said about Christ's first coming. Will he not bring to bear everything He has prophesied concerning Jesus' return. Say, well, the world doesn't believe that. Who cares? (laughs) They weren't looking for the first coming. Even his own people. The scripture says he came into his own and his own received him not. They weren't looking. Looking for God in all the wrong places. (laughs) They weren't looking for God coming in the human flesh to be the Savior of sinners. Now, what are some of the characteristics of Jesus' second advent? You have the outline there in your bulletin. Number one, it will proceed as Christ Himself has predicted. As Christ Himself has predicted. The Mayan calendar, the prediction of the Jehovah's Witnesses, those of Harold Camping, 
retired CEO of Family Radio that has 150 stations, in which they all listed dates for the return of Christ, were and are all bogus. False. They prove themselves false prophets without slightest credibility. God defined himself, his prophet, Jesus, the true prophet, in this way. Here's what he said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses. He's talking to Moses. I will raise up a prophet for them like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And if anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call that person to account. So far, so good. Very, very bold statements, right? There's a prophet coming, Moses. He's going to come out of Israel. He's going to come out of your brothers. And I'm going to put my words in him. And boy, people better listen to his words. And if they don't listen to his words, they will have to answer to me. So far, so good, right? But he went on to say this, same text. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Pretty strong. And then he gives this test. This is what is always in all of our minds. Here's the test. I'm, I'm still reading scripture. You may say to yourselves, well, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? That's a good question. We ought to all ask that. How, how, how can we know? These guys get up and say, well, thus saith the Lord. And then they tell you something. How do you know it's true or not? God goes on. This is wonderful text. I'm going to give you the reference and you should write this down. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Here's the answer. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Oh, there, whoa, whoa, that's really deep theology, isn't it? It's true theology. He goes on, that prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid. Of him. Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22. Simple rule, isn't it? Oh, they prophesied this. It didn't come true. They said, thus saith the Lord. Was it the Lord? No. The fact that it didn't come true proves themselves bogus because God's not a liar and God knows the future and God knows all things that he's going to do so put it all together well you know what our country was afraid 
with the Mayan calendar prediction and in the past with some of these other prognosticators, but I hope you weren't afraid. One of the characteristics of prophecy from God is to give enough information to be a credible witness of what is to occur without removing every element of surprise. We'll talk more about that next week. Now he does this not to calm the fears of unbelievers, but to calm your fears and mine and to give us time for preparation. In our text, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 4. The believers were distraught about their deceased loved ones. And Paul explains that part of their distress was due to ignorance about the nature of Jesus' return. I'm sure he had taught them on these things, but they had short memories. Their loved ones were already with the Lord in spirit, in soul. These Jesus would bring with him at his second coming, verse 15. They will have preeminence in the resurrection, soul being united with a new glorified body. And then anyone still alive at Jesus' coming will join them in the clouds, verse 17, and will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. But you know what happened? Some false prophets had infiltrated the church at Thessalonica and they were teaching that Christ's second coming had already come and gone and they, with their loved ones, were left behind. It's kind of like saying, you know, Christ has come and you missed it. Think about how that would make you feel. You missed it. The promise made to God's people by Jesus himself was this. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, verse 2 and 3. So, if believers, including the brethren at the church of Thessalonica, had known of or taken these words of Jesus seriously, they could not have been upset and frightened when the false teachers said that Jesus had already returned and they missed it. No, Jesus promises to return and take us with Him, not leave us behind. No believer can or will miss out. The very purpose of Jesus' return is to complete our redemption. Do you know that all creation awaits this day? Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. Here's what he writes. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of Him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of what? Our bodies. Our bodies. Romans 8, 19 through 23. Paul says creation is waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. We await freedom from sin and decay. We await the finalization of adoption. In case you don't know it, waiting to finalize adoption is just part and parcel to the course. Sometimes couples wait months and years. Doesn't make it any less real when it comes to be. We await the redemption of our bodies. And all this occurs at the second coming, at the time of the resurrection. So how then were there true, true Christians now, true Christians, who were very agitated over the Mayan calendar scare and the predictions of Harold Camping? You need to ask yourself that. They would have been at peace to hear and believe that Jesus taught that no one knows the day or the hour of His return. What I'm saying is we create a lot of distress for ourselves by not knowing. Worse, by not believing God's Word on these matters. I slept real well that night. I hope you did too. So the first thing is to note that Christ is predicting, predicted His coming. And He tells us up front, no man knows the day or the hour. Only God the Father. And He ain't talking in terms of the details. So anytime, anytime you hear someone say, Christ is coming uh, in 2014 on May 3rd or whatever it is, just chalk it off in your mind. Here's another bogus prophecy. Here's another false prophet. You can even say it prior to May 3rd because no man knows the day or the hour. Another characteristic of Jesus' second coming is a proliferation of evil deeds accompanied by unbelief. Let me give it to you from Matthew 24. And you read this in your uh, meditation reading this morning. Here's what Jesus says. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now he's not talking about his first coming. He's talking about his second coming. He's already there, here. And he's talking to his disciples. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking... Marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. 
Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Here again, he's telling us that. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left the house to be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 44. Now, let's look at a few observations just about this one text. As it was in the days of Noah. With this simple historical reflection, we learn that Jesus believed in the days of Noah. He believed in the flood of Noah's day. And he links that terrible judgment to his own return. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Noah. Yeah, well, that prompts the question in my mind, well, what was it like in the days of Noah? You see something like that, you'd say, okay, he's giving us a marker, a historical marker that we can look at. And so we ask the question, what was it like? Do we have any record of life way back then? Well, Jesus gives us some detail in this Matthew 24 text. In the days before the flood, he says, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. What's he saying? He's saying life's normal activities continued on in Noah's day. Meals, feastings, marriage, starting families, the industry which goes along with providing for families. We would say, life as usual was going on in the days of Noah before the flood. Uh, why the reference to the day that Noah entered the ark? The Bible indicates that Noah was unique among his contemporaries in this. I'm reading scripture. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Genesis 6, verse 9. The previous verse, verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you have all of these people living in Noah's day, <clears throat> and you have a statement from God, almost like Job, the statement he makes about Job. <laughs> a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. In his walk with God, Noah complied with God's order for him to build an ark. That took him 120 years to complete it. But you're, when you're living in your 800s and 900s, 120 years is a drop in the bucket. But Noah was doing something else for God in all those years. Peter says, He, God, did not spare the ancient world when He brought the flood on its ungodly people, but He protected Noah, a preacher 
of righteousness and seven others. The seven others were his family members. 2 Peter 2 verse 5. Noah, as a truly righteous man living in a godless culture, accompanied his shipmaking days as a preacher of righteousness, calling people to repentance, warning them of the impending judgment that was coming. And he did so right up to the day he entered the ark. So the people had a viable witness. So how is it, as Jesus said, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away? Brethren, they knew nothing because they believed nothing that Noah preached to them. To his audience, Noah was some doddering old fool building a boat in the middle of a dry plain. He talked about something called rain. But up until that time, the scripture says, the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Genesis 2. Verse 5 and 6. Now contrast that with the events of the flood in which we read, On that day all the springs of the great deeps burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were open, and rain fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights. Genesis 7, verse 11 and 12. But the people didn't see it coming. Nor will people see and recognize the events of Jesus coming judgment, though we preachers are doing our best to inform them. Again, Jesus speaks of his coming as a thief in the night, unannounced, unexpected, what we would call the tremendous element of surprise. And again, not surprised because nothing has been said about this second coming of Christ, but surprised because people are engulfed in their own day-to-day -day lives, making a living, caring little about future events, and especially religious future events. But, the worst characteristic that parallels to the days of Noah in our day is the tremendous toleration for evil. In Noah's day, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6, 5. You know what that says? It says they didn't have a righteous thought in their brain. It's like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that the wicked lay awake at night plotting their schemes for the next day. May I suggest to you that this is the primary reason for the flood? 
We read now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Genesis 6 verse 11 through 13. And the word in Hebrew here for corrupt means to spoil or here's a very figurative description. It means to go to rot. Mankind went to rot. Go to rot. And that's how it's going to be, Jesus says. In the day of Christ's coming. See, I don't think that's going to happen too soon. Well, let me just read you something here. A man by the name of Nathan Harden, graduate of Yale University, has written a book called Man, Sex, God, and Yale. He's a graduate of Yale, and he writes about Yale University. He writes, there is clearly a radical sexual agenda at work at Yale today. Professors and administrators who came of age during the sexual revolution are busily indoctrinating students into a culture of promiscuity. In fact, Yale pioneered the hosting of a campus sex week. A festival of sleaze, porn, and debauchery dressed up as sex education. And I encountered this tawdry tradition as an undergraduate. And my book documents the events of Sex Week, including the screening in classrooms of hardcore pornography and the giving of permission to manufacturers to market their sex toys and so on. And again, he writes, these things happen with the full knowledge and approval of Yale's senior administrators. They have lost the ability to distinguish between art and pornography, to not to be able to distinguish between right from wrong. It is a sign of its enslavement to the ideology of moral relativism, which denies any objective truth, except, of course, for the truth that there is no truth. Did you know that went on at Yale? I didn't until I read this. This just came this week, so this is fresh off the press. Sex Week, for example, is being implicated now, replicated now at Harvard, Brown, Duke, Northwestern, University of Illinois, University of Wisconsin. Spreading like wildfire. Think of our world. Think of our culture. Our country. Is it not very much like Hosea's criticism? Hosea the prophet writes this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And because of this, the land mourns. And all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are dying. You're losing your natural resources. They're being depleted because, of course, of God. 
God's judgment. That's Hosea 4, verses 1 through 3. And so while Jesus is saying things are going to go from bad to worse, we're moving towards the days of Noah. Proliferation of evil and no belief in God. They're not scared of God. The world isn't scared of God. You want to talk to them about hell and the judgment and the fires to come? They just poo-poo that. They just set it off the side. You're a religious nut. What can I expect from you? Observe thirdly, and this is worst of all, no repentance. No repentance. No contrition. No humility before God. No sorrow for sin. No acknowledgement that God is holy. And only holy people may enter His presence in peace. Or to use Hosea's words... No faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. But there are plenty of other things going on. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, lots of bloodshed. What is it? This is total anarchy. The good people, the godly people who are to be salt and light have lost their influence and evil has taken over. Just this week, just this week, the National Office of the Boy Scouts is advocating that homosexuals be allowed to become scout leaders. Oh, 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 they give this little caveat. They say, well, you know, the local chapters can opt out of the policy. Well, what happens when they have the scout jamboree and all the guys come together from all the local areas? They're capitulating to the liberal homosexual agenda. Just seven months ago, just seven months ago, this is how fast things move. The scouts affirmed their ban on homosexuals in leadership positions. But now they're advocating for a couple from the board. There's been no repentance. Just pushing, pushing the godless agenda. Do you remember Lot's predicament? God sent two angelic messengers to rescue Lot from the impending judgment coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot believed them. No problem there. He believed them. He took steps to convince his sons-to-be, his sons-in-laws-to-be, to escape with him. The scripture says, So Lot went out, and he spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters, And he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy this city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Genesis 19, verse 14. (laughs) Nice joke there, Dad. What had happened? Lot had lost his credibility. It's hard to be taken seriously when you're living in the very culture marked with corruption. And you're part of that. And so his sons-in-law considered his preaching to be a joke. Oh, 
And I ask this question of us this morning. Is your testimony, is my testimony a joke <coughs> to the watching world? Lot told it true. He, he gave an accurate warning to his future son and, sons-in-law, but they made light of it so that they could continue in their sin. Now get out of here. That's not going to happen. No repentance is the death knell of all who perish in their sin. No repentance. Revelation 9 describes three plagues that will be apparent at the coming of Christ. And these three plagues will wipe out one-third of humanity. One-third of the world's population will die from these three plagues that God sends out. And one would think that such carnage would cause the most wicked of sinners to change his or her ways when they would see this happen. But, here's what we read. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor, here it is, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Revelation 9, verse 20 and 21. that give you a little picture, a little window into the souls of men, the wickedness of the heart? If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, you know, I have time to repent. Firstly, you don't know when Christ is coming. That's, we've already learned that. But then, do you have time to repent? Uh, is repentance in your nature to effect? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that faith and repentance are the gifts of God. We're to seek Him while He may be found. Because my spirit will not always strive with you, said to the generation of Noah's day. They had a good preacher. Noah preached righteousness, called people to repentance. But they didn't repent. They couldn't repent. The wickedness of their heart controlled everything they said and did. And so at the coming of Christ, it will be Noah's day revisited. A world ripe for judgment at the second coming of Christ, the Lord of glory. And my question to you this morning is, how will you fare on that day? Today is the day of salvation. Today is your call to repentance and faith. Today is your day not to think, I can repent whenever I want to. I can believe anytime I want to. No. Today is your day to say, oh God, Grant me your faith. Grant me repentance. Because I don't love you. 
And I don't love righteousness. And if I'm going to change, it's going to be you to change me. That's whom you must seek. Seek Christ while he may be found. Father, we're just scratching the surface here on the subject of Jesus' second coming. As we look a couple weeks into this and dig a little deeper, give us your grace. How precious was your first coming. We're going to celebrate that in the next hour around the Lord's table. How precious will also be your second coming when you come for your people and when you come to right wrongs and set things straight. Maybe be ready for that day. It's not a day of joking. It won't be a day of laughter. It'll be a day of great sorrow. I envision in my mind that when the door of the ark was slammed shut by God, not by Noah, it says the Lord closed the door. And the rains began to come as the heavens burst open and the waters of the deep began to come from the ground up. And puddles were formed and then streams and then rivers and then lakes and the Mountains began to disappear as the water ascended, ascended, ascended. I can imagine people beating on the door of the ark, trying to get in, pleading for mercy. But it was too late. They had sinned away their day of grace. And God wasn't about to open the door. There may be some here today that are thinking the same way. Well, I'll repent when I see things starting to happen. I'll believe at the last moment and be saved like the thief on the cross. Unless the door of grace is open, Lord, Jesus says he is the door. Unless the door of grace is opened by you, none of these skeptics will come. But Lord, today, may you draw them by your Spirit. May you seek them that they may seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, number 320, 320 in the red hymnal. Let's stand together and sing. Jared comes and lead us. 320 in the Trinity. Oh,
for the Lord's table when you hear the music. We're dismissed. Mm -hmm.